film is a sort of dreamscape. You get this kind of groundless passion. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah. All right, good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. Thanks for your patience. We want to show a film. It's called Who Killed That Policeman Who Got Killed on Broadway Farm That Time. I don't like to call his name. It's not about trying to be disrespectful to him. All right, we don't mock what happened to him. Um, and we don't want to disrespect his memory because he, he's important to some people. But I try not to call his name because when they talk about him, they don't call the name of Cynthia Jarrett. All right? We try to give balance. That's what the mainstream media says they're doing, so we're balancing it. What we're going to do is show a segment of the film, 45 minutes worth. It'll still be a good segment. And then we're going to have a, a, a panel discussion here. The guy that's there with the see-through clothes, you can't actually see him at all, is Mark Braithwaite. <laughs> he should be here. I'm not quite sure where he's gone, but he'll be back here for the discussion. He likes a good talk, so I know he won't miss that. This is Winston Silcott, a.k.a. back in those days, he was um, known as Sticks. Um, our good brethren lived on Broadwater Farm and from Broadwater Farm. And this is um, Jude Lanchin. Jude, um, she was with us in the 80s, caseworker, is that what we'd call you? A caseworker, um, one of our better caseworkers who worked with a lot of our, our clients. Jude then um, went on to become a, a lawyer and is a senior partner, senior associate partner, senior associate at Bindman's um, solicitors, really expensive solicitors if you... <laughs> if you can't, like, really expensive if you can't get legal aid so it's really fantastic that Jude was there in the 80s with us um, in some sense might have cut, cut her teeth on some of this legal stuff once we've seen the film she's going to kind of be the moderator to help us to tell our story so what you're going to get in this space is two of the Tottenham three that's really rare alright it's really rare. The only other time I ever put you guys on stage was um, they only came together because Nicky Jacobs, really, wasn't it? That's what brought everybody together. Um, and we're going to talk about a time that we can't really bring you back to. Unless if you are around in those days and engaged in those days, you'll understand. We're going to bring you to a time when, um, if we're talking about a war in a Babylon, we brought the war to them. Well, they brought the war to us. We defended ourselves. And then, mum, we had to deal with the weight, the weight of a system. And um, I, think, I think that we survived, really, is one of the greatest stories. But we're going to share some of that with you afterwards. So, Mark Braithwaite, um, again, one third of the Tottenham Three. Hello, good afternoon. Hello and good afternoon. How long have you been out now, sir? Yeah. How long have you been out now? About 19. About, been 19, about 19 years. years. But he did 18 years before, so he's been out an equal amount as the time he's been in. And he, um, he underplays what he's been through. Because this is a man who the state went to publicly execute 
but we don't do public executions. So they just try to, to disappear him for a long time. And during the days when he was disappeared, I was out here campaigning, well, for both of them. And it was hard. And, you know, I got arrested for murder a couple times and it was depressing. And when I got depressed, when it was too tough, I went to visit this man here. And um, he used to inspire me and made me have the strength to continue the struggle. And he was inside feeling it. So the story you're going to hear in a while is really, really powerful. But once everyone did what I want them to do, Selecta, boss that film, please. And we'll all be back immediately as this after. Thank you. Don't know about you, but um, for me, that was an interesting watch. Obviously, very interesting from our perspective, um, watching that with Winston and, and, and Mark. There's no way we can reproduce you on this stage, and even by showing that, how dark and distressing and difficult and hard and oppressive. and It was just so immense what we all went through, basically, as children. Can't overemphasize that. So before we start, I just want to acknowledge and give a big hand to these two brothers because they are our great survivors. Well done. Winston, um, can I ask you why you think that you were targeted? Obviously, it's been made clear that you were initially on bail and then charged and convicted with a murder. But I think in most people's minds, that wouldn't necessarily be enough for you to be, perhaps it was, but I'd like to understand, I'm sure people here would be a little bit about your past before that. I can remember some incidents when Princess Diana came, etc. So you know what I'm on about. Why do you think you were targeted in this way? Well, basically, um, back in those days, like what uh, Martha and Stafford was telling you uh, at the first session, when we was kind of getting politicised and doing things in the community, I was quite vocal. And um, obviously, um, growing up in them times, you had a lot of run-ins, obviously, with the police. And in their view is... They see as one thing, basically, they look at you, well, you're a criminal. You can't change, you know? And I always sort of got that from um, uh, the, the police, basically. You know what I mean? And as um, Brutal Farm sort of progressed, like the Youth Association, we had a lot of interactions with the police, and that, that was their view. And a lot of things, what happened, they're coming for me. That's, that's what they used to say. And also, I think you and Stafford probably would agree that you were seen as somebody that, in their eyes, didn't um, abide by authority, if you like. Yeah, that, you know, you were a strong person, strong yeah. personality, and weren't going to take what was being dished out. Well, that's correct. We weren't going to take their narrative. 
just moving on a little bit from that, and then I'll ask Mark a couple of things. We've all seen a little bit about how the police tried to build this case against you, and what's in the film is only a millimetre of what they did. Did you think it would get as far as it did? Were you ready and waiting for the total conspiracy that it all turned out to be? Not just the Esther, but all the, all the kids who were pushed into making statements against you that turned out to be fabricated and lied and delusional? Well, to tell the truth, at the start, I thought, no way. Because even though um, these alleged people was supposed to be calling my name, I was many characters, many people. I was Turkish, white, four foot nothing, weird glasses. But you could understand, once you saw the inter once I saw the interview notes, I could see where the police are sort of training these young people to stare in their direction. So then I realized, well, this is um, serious, very serious. I mean, it might be a bit of a trite question, but how did you, how did you cope with this? I mean, it started then and then it went on for 18 years. Well, basically, something within me just told me I've got to keep strong because um, you had the likes of my parents, friends and family were supporting me when basically when I was in there, I just thought the whole world was against me. Well, the way the media were dealing with it, they were trying to make the whole world against you. That's correct. Before the ESDA test, did you believe that eventually something would happen that would blow it wide open and that you'd get back to the Court of Appeal? Well, a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say people, inmates, a lot of inmates looked at me as like a madman because I did believe it would be a t overturned, but I didn't believe it would be overturned so quickly. Thanks. We'll come back to you, I think. Mark, do you want to tell, if you feel like it, a little bit about how you got dragged into this madness? Because obviously your story isn't... Yeah, you weren't even at the farm and you were an Islington person. You weren't particularly connected to Haringey or Broadwater Farm, so maybe you can just explain a bit about what happened to you. Well, well what happened to me was um, I was nicked in... Islington on um, February, February, I think it's February the 6th, 1986. So that was way afterwards. I was in a cab and while I was telling the cab driver to turn one way, I saw a car coming flying down the road. So I said to him, give the car away. And as he gave the car away, the car stopped in front of me stopped in front of us and it was like I didn't know who it was then another car come from behind and then all I was done was dragged out of the passenger seat um, put onto the basic key pushed my hands onto the top of the car 
went through my pockets, flung everything onto the top of the car, handcuffed me, and then told me that I'm arrested for murder. And then they didn't say what it was about. They just basically put me in the car and drove me from Islington all the way to um, Barnet. And I'm going to myself, I goes, where are you taking me? Because you're going past the police stations where I live and you're going past all the police stations that I know. And they took me to Barnet and he felt like they was kidnapping me. And when I got to Barnet, he put me in the cell, they kept me there. I turned around and I'm saying, I'm asking them what's going on. They're not giving me no information to what's going on. And it took a while. Then the detectives came and they basically spoke to me. And then they started they started coming with this narrative, asking me these questions. And I said to them, I don't know what you're talking about. And they continued and continued. And then it was like, they put me back in the cell, take me back out the cell. Put me back in the cell, take me back out the cell. And then it's like, they caught in a narrative to me. And it's like, it was like, how can I explain? It's like, you're saying to yourself, you're there. And you're thinking to yourself, how do you basically cope with this situation? Because I've never been in a situation like this. Right, so then they telling me about murder. I'm saying to you, you really must be off your head. Yeah, and they continued it, they continued it. And um, it was only afterwards, it's like they turned around and they was asking me, they put in questions to me saying that you was on Broadwater Farm. I'm saying to them, no, I wasn't. And then they're going, you was on Broadwater Farm and then this going on, this going on. And it just got too much. So basically, for me, I went to court. They turned around and they said to me that they they took me to court. They took me to, where was it? Topnam. They took me to the court in Topnam. I went to Topnam there and I saw bundles of people down there. Then they took me back to the station. And when they took me back to the station, now all the time I haven't eaten, I'm sick, I don't feel well. And basically when it came apparent to me what was going on, it was that they was putting names to me to see if I knew the names. And I'm saying to them, I don't know none of these names. And because I'm telling them I don't know none of these names, they're telling me they brought out a list from people who lived in my area and said to me, do you know these names? And I said, no, these people are way older than me. I wouldn't have no association with them. So what are you talking about? So what I realized it was, afterwards is that all of the majority of the kids them who was being arrested it was like a domino effect so if they ask you if you know a person you say you know that person then what they would do they go and arrest that person and then they ask another set of people's names and then it's basically there so it was only later on when I saw how many people were in the cells and then they told me the same story which they basically went through yeah so in the end the evidence that they claimed they had against you was actually somebody else's statement. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, somebody else's statement. Somebody else who, again, later on, that was discredited. Can you just explain in a nutshell how you came to be a quick cleared as well? What was the basis eventually, um, after all those years, of how you... Well, mine was basically was on the breaches of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. Because while, um, 
We went to Strasbourg to the, the Court of Human Rights um, to appeal against it. And what the British government said is that we hadn't exhausted all our domestic remedies, meaning I, we hadn't applied to the House of Lords and that. We didn't apply to the House of Lords because of specific reasons. And what happened from there onwards, they said that because they said that, then it went back to the Home Secretary here and then the Home Secretary then referred it back to the Court of Appeal. Yeah, so in the end, it was another set of evidence or another example, as you say, of other people having suggestions and stories put to them. This person then named you in some fantastical things you were supposed to have done, plus there were other issues to do with breach of the law and the way that you were dealt with. Is that a yeah, right yeah, it was summary of what happened? Well, to be truthful, what basically, there was a case called, I, I can go a little bit more into detail on him. There's a case called Samuels, and the case Samuels had a, basically, it was the breaches of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, and Samuels was actually the guideline. But when they turned around, I read Samuels case, and when it came to the Court of Appeal, when they had a book there and they've started to go through how many different so what they did it turned out is that my case had more breaches than the case yeah. was, which was the guidelines so how did we, we've heard about how winston somehow unbelievable really maintained his strength and belief that eventually he would come out of this nightmare so how did you sustain yourself in a belief or maybe you didn't have a belief that eventually you were going to get out when you no. weren't even there i had a belief of getting out i always had a belief of getting out because basically there was only two options is either you go off your head or you basically keep your head because i think when you go through a situation which you don't expect i think you adapt and the hostilities, which pff, I can't even tell you how far we went through, the hostilities were great. So you had no choice but to turn around and to firm yourself up. Can I ask both of you um, what impact, if anything, are the defence campaign, the defence committee, all the struggles outside by all of us and a lot of other people to support you, try and push for new legal proceedings. Did that make any difference? I know it might sound like a silly question, but sometimes you don't even know it. I mean, did it sustain you at all? Because, you know, it's the importance of community struggle well, and campaigns. Well, for me, it did sustain me. Because like I said before, being in there and you, you're getting the media coverage TV coverage, you know? Basically, it's like the world's against you. And to have somebody to believe in you, plus as well, um, there was other inmates in there in the same famous cases like Birmingham City, Guildford 4, Carl Bridgewater. And I used to sit with these guys and um, just drifting a bit. Basically, I used, I, used to sit, I used to sit with these guys and they used to tell me their story and what they go through. And I'm thinking, hang on there. At least there's a story. When I looked at my case, 
There's no story. They've got the so-called words, yeah? I didn't say them. And obviously, how am I going to prove that I didn't say them? And even if I did say them, they're ambiguous. They don't mean nothing. You see what I'm saying? So I'm thinking, boy, some, something's wrong. So I was to sit down like with the, 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 um, some of these Irish guys, because they just said, they're the blacks of Europe. And I said, when you're really black like me, you're in trouble. Because at least they make up a story. And they go through like a, a chronology of events in minds. They put, was it 30 words together? Which I didn't, yeah, which I didn't, which I didn't even say. And you've got to understand, I was in Paddington Police Station when this alleged um, documentation is supposed to take part. And they, they alleged that I, I said, Jesus, Jesus, got by my chair and I went to a window to look out the window. Now, I, I, with tears in my eyes and everything, what you guys realize, I was in a terrorist police station. When you look through the window, you can't see nothing through the window. So what am I going to the window for? It, just, it, it didn't make no sense. You see what I'm saying? So, so even when I initially got arrested, the first thing the police said to me, they don't care where I was in the world. They don't care where I was in the world. That's what they said to me. Yeah, they could discredit my people. That's what they said. I think um, we could open it up to the floor now. If people have got specific questions that they'd like to ask. Hi, good afternoon. Um, firstly, thank you for talking your story. I can only imagine what it's like to how many times you've had to recall that story. Um, and I appreciate that. And um, my first question is, are you all right? Because that's what I'd want somebody to ask me if I'd been through even a smidgen of what you've been through. Well, uh, well to answer that question, I would say I'm, I'm all right, but I'm broken as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, I'm all right. Okay, good. Um, I'm from Tottenham. My mum still lives in Tottenham, Radley Road. I had my, my little round black face pressed up to my mum's windows, watching people run down Radley Road that night. And my mum was screaming at me to get away from the windows. Um, Tottenham will always be home for me. Yeah? No matter what anybody says about Tottenham, Tottenham will always be home for me. It'll be bad to somebody else, but it gives me warm feelings. How do you feel now from that experience where Tottenham and Broadwater Farm was home for you, maybe Winston, and okay, Mark, your experience of Tottenham will be different because I wouldn't blame you if you didn't want to hear that name again. But how does it feel now where this whole experience has bastardized your feeling of home, your happy memories up until then, where you were um, with your friends, with Stafford, with other people, enjoying yourself as young people. And all of a sudden, now that feeling of home, that feeling of belonging, now is only synonymous with something so terrible, I can't even get my head around it. Winston? Well, for, for me, Tottenham will always be my home, to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> 
the, 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 the police experience hasn't, hasn't deterred me from Tottenham. Because before, before that, as a young person, not just me, many young people, we're doing great works. Yeah. We do great works in Tottenham. Now, 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 for instance, when I tell people that, um, what, what do you call it, meals and heels, but it's meals and wheels, yeah? Now, for instance, imagine there was this kind of divide on Tottenham where you had blacks and you had whites. Certain white people would see you and they'd drift away from you. They didn't want nothing to do with you, yeah? When we started to do uh, meals and wheels, or meals and heels, as Stafford said, there was this kind of coming together. You kind of got to know each other, cracking jokes, talking, the shyness, the fearfulness evaporated. In some instances, people became friends. That, especially like with me, I can remember I lived on the, the fourth floor, and on the second floor below me, there was this elderly white lady. Every time I went in the lift and she was in the lift, she hold her bag like this. Seriously, yeah? And I was ignorant, so I had to stop the lift or come out the lift, yeah? And after a while, we became friends. Seriously, we literally became friends. It's not about Tottenham, right? It's not about after 2011, a bunch of councillors decided they're going to um, start a campaign called We Love Tottenham, rubbish. There's very little to love in Tottenham, if we be totally honest. It's about the community and it's about the people. All right? What Winston, what happened to him, they wanted us all to turn our back on him, and we never did. We supported him throughout his sentence, and when he was released, there's only one place he could ever come back to, where people weren't always going to be looking at him, pointing at him, or, turn, or speaking behind his back. So... Um, there's no place like Tottenham, but it's about the, the people, not the, physical, not the physical location. Mark, is there anything you felt like saying, it's not directly because you're not from uh, well, there? Well, but... no, I think that basically, um, I think that Tottenham as a whole felt the brunt of it. But I think that the wider black community in London felt it because everything changed from then. The policing changed, the way people looked at black people changed from then. Um, some black people believed that it was, they needed to assimilate to basically be understood. And I, you know, a lot of things, I mean, for me, I done a lot of growing up there. So I done a lot of book reading and things. So I actually read a lot of things. And when I came, and what I saw, what the place looked like in that short period of time was um, very different. You do need to look at it. I mean, as the younger folk there, I will say to you that basically 1980, coming from 19, you can start it from the 70s because there's a, like, we've got internet now, so it's easy for you to research a lot of things. But if you look, coming from there, when people talk about Windrush, people just look at it as a standpoint of people coming from the Caribbean to England. But there's a lot what took place from them periods of times. Even our parents can turn around. And if you've got grandparents, I would advise you to go and sit down with them and ask them how it was for them when they came here. And then it will bring you to present day. Because I think a lot of people are living in the illusion that now 
is like was back then. It's not the same far. It's not the same at all. What's happened now is like back in the days, the racism was blatant in your face. Now it's basically institutionalized. It's basically marginalized. It's micro. It's all kind of different ways it's coming to you. And it's subtle. You understand me? It's just like when we was growing up, they had National Front. Yeah? And then I always ask people, where did these people suddenly disappear to? Because there's no more National Front. Yeah? yeah? And I said... They're now your housing officers. They're now your police. They're now your, you understand me? So you get it. They've all integrated. So they don't need to say what they have to say. They can do it. So you have to be more vigilant. Like, yeah, I'm sorry about what you guys had to go through. Just a quick question. If you could go back where you are right now is in this room and your younger self when you are arrested, what would you say to yourself now? And are you optimistic for the future? Is there anything that brings joy to your life right now? You mean if I could go back yeah. knowing what I know now? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be optimistic, that's for, one, for sure. I wouldn't be optimistic because like Mark said, um, the tables are sort of turned. Like I said, it's not as... When we grew up, a lot of things was much more blatant, yeah? Like you've heard of the sus laws, you know what I mean? They could have stopped you in the street and said you stole from persons unknown. Just chat any rubbish, take you to the court, yeah? To the magistrate court. You could get a six months, three months, was it DC, stool or whatever, just on that say-so. Now, coming to present day, they've got a thing, was it joint enterprise? conspiracy, which is worse because you're not getting no three months, yeah, or six months DC, you're getting 25 years. Well, I wanted to say the joint enterprise is, isn't that was part of uh, what we basically was charged under. And yeah, joint joint enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in joint enterprise, all they have to do, they only have to find one in the group guilty in the sense there and then said that the rest of them actually by their presence being there you created that, that issue you're so you're a part of it too yeah it's like all right back in the days you could turn around if you didn't know you said well you didn't know but with joint enterprise it draws the whole lot and it can draw like say like all of you here and they turned around and it, something happened inside of here now they say that this group over here was actually involved through to joint enterprise the similarity about the two laws is that they're common law. These were laws that were on the statute books that, was, that actually weren't on the statute books, didn't go through Parliament. These are old Victorian laws that the police, they breathe life into it again. And the minute you hear they do that, this is institutionalization because they're using these laws to target a certain section of the community. And we know that they don't need, you don't need joint enterprise, we've got conspiracy laws. Right? We didn't need the sus laws. Right? There was a lot of laws around at the time. They used it to target people. This is about the institutionalized race, institutionalization of racism. This is why we call it a war in a Babylon. Even if we're not fighting, even if you're not fighting, they still are. Thank you, um, Winston and Mark, for your re retelling such a, an insidiously evil story. And thanks.
Stafford and Solicitor for, for the support because um, that's needed. What I was going to ask was, um, we know that bigotry and discrimination is it's been institutionalised from, from inception, really. We know that from the transatlantic genocide. We know this. It's just raised its head in different forums. But looking at your story and stories before, not stories, accounts, life stories, life histories before, can we, it has to be acknowledged that the, the media and the institutions work hand in glove. Throughout the century, if you look back to some of the old archive Times newspaper stories, the way they spin those stories, that needs to be recognised because families <clears throat> that want to get support and they go to some of these media institutions and they're already working hand in glove. They'll, they'll spin the narrative and you'll come out looking like the evil person, like what, they, what they've always done. We need to really... It comes out in this, this um, exhibition, Stafford, but it needs to be really highlighted so people can... Because we need that protection. Did, did you have a question about the media yeah. or to ask? Just to ask, what, what would you um, advise families that are going through this, these types of discrimination, I suppose, um, to avoid that media trap? Because it is a trap. There is, no, there, is no way, there is no way of avoiding the media trap. What we try to show out here is about institutionalisation, right? They want to talk about institutional as if to say, you know, this thing just happened accidentally, inadvertently, people didn't know, they didn't realise. That's bullshit. It's institutionalisation. It's how one institution gets the support of the rest of the system to embed the processes, the behaviours, to not just to embed, to embed it, not just in the system, but within the mentality of society. Is why we start off the exhibition with the quote, from Kenneth Newman, showing clearly how they plan to other people and how that othering continues after they've gone. It's why we show that in 68, um, Enoch Powell makes that speech, Rivers of Blood, talks about swamping, and we show in 81, the police are still using the language of Operation Swamp. So we're trying to show the continuation this is not by accident. And as for the media, you can't say that because they're, 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 because they haven't identified racism that they're not a part of it. They're an absolute part of the system. And if you watch, sorry, if you watch the film the other day about the, the 13 dead and nothing set, when people wanted to demonstrate about the police inactivity, it's when they got to Fleet Street it was the behaviour of those journalists in Fleet Street that really incest people. So we're fighting against a system. I was just going to say, in terms of the media for Winston's case, after, when he was tried, all of the juvenile evidence had gone because it had been thrown out of court as fantastical. So he was literally convicted on the 23 words or whatever it was. I think it was under 30, Winnie. I can't remember now, but... In the, fifth, in the fifth interview, and that was after a year, a year and a half of trial by media. You saw the photograph, that's where it started. The jury convicted him on, on that alone. And, and on that photo, basically, as, as it portrayed in a, that documentary, um, when I was telling people, I had some people like disbelieving me. 
But the thing is, when we got the negative, you can see the white hands pulling away. Because when we got held in the negatives, huh? Yeah. Well, basically, you saw white hands pulling away, basically. And to me, I've been in police stations before. So I was sh shocked to see behind the door, this door just closed, and on a tripod, there's this camera. I, I, I don't know if you ever watch um, Westerns back in the day, and they have these big old cameras. Yeah, well, it was something similar to that, but it was a modern day one. This was like made of aluminium. And I'm thinking, they're going to fit me up here because on Broadwater Farm back in them time, like, when we was doing good works on the Broadwater Farm, we used to have a photography class. And uh, Nigel, he, show, he was showing me that you could take somebody's head and place it onto somebody's body. And that's what I thought they was going to do. So I'm kind of incensed and frightened for my life. I think there was one more question. One thing I was just hoping, and this is more for the solicitor, um, to be honest. I think Tottenham and, and the black community in general is depicted as being lawless, not respecting the law, not abiding by the law. But actually, one of the big things um, in terms of how the case was built was how the police themselves threw the law out of the window in order to build the case. So in terms of when we've spoken about the kids getting rounded up in Tottenham to put words in their mouth and actually being kept without an appropriate adult, being kept outside of legal process in order to build that case. I was hoping you could explain just a little bit in more detail how the law was not followed and abused and thrown out of the window to make this case. Okay, so very, very quickly, it was a dry run for the Police and Criminal Evidence Act in 1984, which is actually a total joke because that act was the first act that was supposed to come in to actually safeguard suspects' rights, like with um, tape recording instead of handwriting, etc., etc. But they didn't follow it properly, and they used that as an excuse to say, well, it was just a dry run. When it came to the juveniles, basically, they were allowed appropriate adults because they couldn't totally you know, not do that. But what they did is they got their own appropriate adults. So the police used people like social workers and various other people who they chose and they basically intimidated them as well actually and most of the the appropriate adults didn't stand up for the rights of the kids and they were completely freaked out and some of them had bought into the whole narrative themselves about you know this terrible event and Blake Lock being hacked to death blah 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 so they just got away with it but when it eventually got to court and all of it came out with the lawyers and the QCs putting all this forward, this is why all the juveniles, the three who were in the murder trial, they got their cases dropped and all the other juvenile evidence against Winston got thrown out because there was a catalogue of... They, that when Stafford, or maybe it was in the... Yeah, it was in the film, was talking about the, the kids with... Uh, learning difficulties from Moselle, wasn't it? They went and rounded up loads of kids from this well-known um, school on the farm. I mean, it was just disgusting. They just basically did it until it got to court and was challenged. So that's, what, that's how they, they got away with it, until they couldn't. Um, I think there was yeah. Mark, yeah. So first of all, I just want to commend you all for 
doing this, this exhibition, I've been to a few also distant stuff earlier on, and like, you know, for me, this one is on a different level, yeah? Um, Winston said um, he was broken, right? And I wanted to just ask you, put that in words, what does that feel like? Because I think, as for me, as a black man, we don't really talk about our feelings. We don't talk about the experience of growing up. I can remember, you know, I got in a car. Anytime I got in a car, I would take my hat off because I'm, a, you know, I'm worried about being pulled up by the feds just because I'm a black youth. Yeah, so I want to just, you know, if you can encapsulate what, is that, what has that felt like and what has this exhibition, has this exhibition changed that, that kind of, you know, your, your youth growing up? What is it, how has well, it impacted? Relating to when I said broken, I didn't mean like physically, because I, I, I believe I'm mentally strong. But what, what I mean is um, um, sort of broken. It's just that basically is that sometimes you've always got to prove yourself, you know? And I know what I went through. Yeah, and like Stafford was telling before, uh, I went through harrowing times just with like Mark, victimized, yeah, crucified. But basically, when I make say broken, it's like powerless. Because the police who told lies against me, when I heard they was going to trial, trust me, I was doing this. I'm going to court to have my day. Prosecution, nobody, no, nobody don't call me. So when they got off now, I'm thinking, how does, how does that work? How could the British public sit with that and let them get away with it? And that's the brokenness I, I, I feel that yeah. sometimes it's a helplessness. You know what I mean? That, that you're doing the right thing, going through the right channels, yeah, but you're not getting no readdress. Yeah, I actually was going to ask you how you felt when Melvin and Sergeant got off, just like. <sighs> Mark, did you want to answer, say anything about your, or was well, it a question just to Winston? I think, I think it was, I think, I think it was to Winston, but. Okay, sorry. No, um, no, no, it's not a problem. But yeah, I do understand what Winston's talking about and, you know, not being funny. It's only when you go through them situations, and sadly, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but trust me, you will realize that some of the things which you think go the way you think don't at all. And the system there, the system is, the, system, the, system's, kind of, the system's kind of wired a certain way. And I think that sometimes as people, as just normal people, you know, I remember my mum used to pick up when they used to go to the educational board, they used to pick up the pamphlet. When they used to go to the bank, they pick up some, you know, they pick up the leaflets in the bank and they take them home and read. Not necessarily that they're going to utilise them, but they read them. And it's only now you really actually understand why. Because... There's a lot of things what go on day to day which most of the general public are not aware of. You understand? And I think when we go there, we plead 
Like, you know, we, we go with this angle that we're pleading with people to understand us. Mm. And I'm saying, if you've been in this place from since how many years, from your parents gave birth to you in this place, when does it get to the point that you realize to yourself is that it's not people don't know you, they don't want to know you. So what you have to do in yourself is learn about yourself and when you feel something is wrong, insert it in the correct manner to them. Instead of saying to yourself it's basically racism and it's this and it's that. I like the word and everybody uses it. I'm going to use this for them to explain what I mean. You have enough history beyond slavery, beyond everything to defend yourself against anybody. But if you don't know it, then you can't say nothing. So you're always going to find yourself in this situation with people who have a less history than yours dictating to you. Yes, Mark. Thank you. I really admire everything that you guys have done. I think it's admirable. And I just know that everybody here really appreciates it. Um, Winston, really appreciate that you've poured your out to us and my man there as well. It's really good. Um, my, my question was um, that one got answered already, which was how are you going to pursue or if there was going to be any pursuing against these two police who got off. That was the first one, but you sort of answered that. And the other one was, is there any way this, what you're doing, could be rolled out like to other community groups to hear this story? Because to me, it's like something that really, really would need to well, be heard. Stafford could answer that very quickly. Um, there is okay, a plan. I'm finished. I had a Needs few more, money. but finished. Okay, thanks. I mean, being here doing this, it's taken us 70 years to get here, if we'd be really honest, as a community, all right? So, yes, we would love to bring it all over the country. But, you know, and, and we're clear, the black communities want it, all right? One of the things, one of our milestones, one of our measures here, were if we were going to be able to actually get black people into this space, and I can tell you, it's amazing, they're outnumbering everybody else. Right? So there's absolutely an appetite for it from our community's perspective. There's no doubt about that. The question is whether there's an appetite from it, for it from wider society. You think they're going to vote Brexit and then demand this in their towns and their villages next week? Huh? Yeah, they do need, absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe... If, and maybe had we done this, they wouldn't have voted for Brexit. Who knows? But um, look, we would love to bring this everywhere. We think that every community, all the communities that we know about, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Bristol, they all have stories to tell. All of them, you know. We've been, I've been to Manchester, I know how the uprisings there start. I've been to Toxif, I know how they started. And then there's the history before the uprisings. So we know that every single area has a story to tell. We know in terms of racism, that in London we're kind of probably luckier than other, privileged maybe, in, compare, in comparison to other areas. We know the policing is bad here. 
But we know that it's terrible in other areas. So of course, we would love to bring this to other areas. What we hope is that we're starting those conversations that are likely to make it more likely to happen. And I would hope that we are because we're creating history in this place. Can I just end with a massive round of applause to Winston and Mark and Stafford, but Winston and Mark particularly. Thank you, guys.